0: Well, good morning, everybody. Oh, man, it's wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. If you join us for the first time, first time in a long time, we're so glad to have you. We hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted to fit right in and make yourself at home here today at the Vista. Now, today we are in the eighth and final week of our series called Chasing the Wind, a series where we've been walking through this Old Testament book known as Ecclesiastes. And uh, I don't know about you, but I have just found the book so pleasantly challenging and surprising and refreshing to walk through. Anybody else? I mean, yeah, I remember when Dave uh, suggested the series not too long ago, he's like, What do you think about Ecclesiastes? And I thought, Boring? Sounds very boring. Ecclesiastes sounds like a very boring book to me. But man, I have been so in particular challenged and surprised by Solomon's ruthlessly unsentimental, he's not a very sentimental man, and yet deeply human wisdom. And wisdom has always been a really important thing for humans, but I think you can make the case that uh, wisdom is currently more important than it has ever been given that we modern people have so much more information and thus propaganda to sort through than any humans have ever had to sort through. Back in 2003, then Google CEO Eric Schmidt famously observed that we humans, we currently create as much information every two days as all of humanity had created from the dawn of human civilization up to 2003. And that was 20 years ago. All right, so in other words, for most of human history, I mean, what information did you need to deal with on a daily basis? What did you have to process? Well, you had to process whether you were hungry, whether you were thirsty, And whether or not that rustling in the bushes was a saber-toothed tiger, okay? That's really all you had to worry about. But nowadays, we have to worry. We have to sort through information on, gosh, you know, like stock markets and inflation and global politics and supply chains and Kardashians. And that's before we've even had our morning sip of coffee. And so this delusion of modern information and propaganda has made information all the more important because wisdom is the capacity to sort through all the noise so that we can narrow our very limited attention and affection down to what really matters the most. When we were doing a series planning meeting for this series, one of the things that all of our pastors on staff noted was this pervasive feeling that all of us feel like life is just too much. Anybody feel like life is just too much? There's too much drama. There's too much trauma. There's too much stress. There's too much anxiety. There's too much information. There's just too much stuff to do. And so if you feel like life is just, we can probably turn that off now. Um, If we feel like life is just too much, then first and foremost, see that you are not alone. But if you feel that way, then what you probably need is not a planner, or a mindfulness app, or a productivity hack, or a maid, or more time. No, if you feel like life is too much, then what you probably need is wisdom, meaning the capacity to discern and the permission to accept life's boundaries so that you can live with instead of against the grain of reality. Now, Sarah Hammond and Dave have done a great job over the last two weeks getting us up here to the finish line, and so now I'll take the baton today and take it down the home stretch. you got your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 11, we'll pick up on verse 7. That's right where Dave left off last week, and we'll read through most of chapter 12. It'll be on the screen for you as well. It says, the light is pleasant, and it's good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Now rejoice, young man, and might I add, young woman, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, young womanhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, and know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So... Remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. And everybody who's over 40 said, amen. Now, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened and clouds return after the rain. Now in the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and mighty men stoop the grinding ones stand idle because they are few and those who look through the windows grow dim. And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low and one will arise at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags himself along. The capybary is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the streets. Now remember him. Before the silver cord is broken, the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered. And the will at the cistern is crushed. Because then the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit will return to the God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Ecclesiastes 11:7 through 12. 8. So I, I don't think that any of you will find it surprising to learn that this uh, text has been the occasion for no small amount of controversy over the years and these verses in particular were single-handedly responsible for almost getting Ecclesiastes kicked out of the Bible. And now among the ancient rabbis, there was a lot of debate as to whether or not Ecclesiastes should be considered an inspired, sacred, holy book due in large part to what we just read here in Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9, wherein we are told, and I quote, that we should follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Because what could possibly go wrong if you followed the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes? It seems like such a great idea to follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of of guys, Well, in addition to some pretty common sense observations about all the ways in which it seems like this could maybe not be the best advice in certain circumstances, rabbis also noted that it was in direct contradiction to what God himself had said through Moses in Numbers 15. So this is Numbers 15, 37 through 40. The Lord also spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and you tell them to remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them. And to not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So there it is, right? Who's right? Solomon or Moses? Do you follow your desires or not follow your desires? And while I think it's clear who you'd probably want to take with you to 6th Street, um, the church, in her wisdom, correctly discerned that the Bible was a big enough place for Solomon and Moses you know Solomon's there to order the shots Moses is there to drive you home and that uh, the Bible the Bible was a better place with Solomon and Moses than it would have been with Solomon or Moses in other words the church discerned that Solomon and Moses' perspectives on desires and what to do with them were best seen as a duet and not a duel, as a fruitful collaborative tension and not an irresolvable contradiction. And so that said, we are in Solomon's book. And so what does Solomon have to say? Well, he starts off with one of my favorite verses. It's a simple one, but I love it. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 7. He says, The light is sweet and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. Now, I, I am aware that some of you uh, prefer rainy days, and just want you to know that I, I pray for your poor, sad, moody souls every sunny day, especially today, because y'all, it is science. The sun is awesome, it, it makes us happy, it gives us vitamin D, it releases serotonin, it's an atomic reactor at the center of the solar system that is infecting everybody with good vibes, right? That's what the sun is. And uh, I tend to think it's intentional that Solomon singles out the sun as a reason for rejoicing. Because if you remember, he also frequently uses this phrase, under the sun, as a shorthand to talk about how sorry life can be sometimes on planet Earth. So for example, Ecclesiastes 10 verse 5, he says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun. And so it's like he's, he's orbited around the entirety of life under the sun. And he's meticulously documented all of life's imperfections and absurdities. And so now having seen it all at the end of a long and complicated life, he comes to the conclusion that while life under the sun is often unjust and indifferent and hateful, it's nevertheless good. Good. Solomon comes to the conclusion that when all is said and done and when everything has been accounted for, it is good for us to be here. And it's appropriate, it's fitting for us to rejoice in something as simple as the light of the sun. And then you might have noticed that Solomon actually—he gets a little bossy about this. Uh, he slips into the imperative mood, and he implores us to rejoice in every single one of our years, to rejoice in every single trip we get around the sun in our lives under the sun. And you might have also noticed that Solomon is especially keen to encourage young people to enjoy their youth with great gusto, right? Ecclesiastes 11.9, we'll read it again. Rejoice, young man, young woman, and your child and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. And parents, this is why one of your most sacred and holy callings as a parent is to create an enormous capacity for joy in your children. That's a holy calling. Don't condition your children to experience life as a catastrophe. Don't load your children up with burdens that their little shoulders aren't big enough to bear, that your shoulders are barely big enough to bear, but rather give your children encouragement and permission to enjoy their lives under the sun. Now, I I don't know if I'm a very good parent. The jury is still very much out on that one. But I will say that one of the things I am very proud of about the Fisher household is that it's, it's a very joyful place. We get a lot of things wrong, but it is a very joyful place. Our two boys are feral animals, and our little girl is somehow the worst of the most. She really is. But, but one of the things that we did get right is our kids understand how awesome and sweet and precious it is to be alive. And that's one of the most important things in the world to me because teaching your kids how to be joyful is every bit as important as teaching your kids how to pray and know the Bible. It is. Uh, recently, we were driving to a friend's house and while we were on the way with the kids for dinner at this friend's house, we gave them the talk. Now, those of you who have good, respectable children, you don't know the talk, but those of us who don't, there's this talk that we give our kids on the way to your house, and, and here's how it goes. We'll be in the car and we'll go, hey, listen up. For the next two hours while we're at this house, we need you to not be yourselves, okay? I know you're told to be yourself. Don't be yourself. I want you to fake it and pretend like you're good, respectable, responsible kids, right? Don't, don't drop trowel and pee in somebody's front yard. That happens all the time, right? Don't invite us over unless you want public nudity to happen at your house. I'm just telling you. We were in the middle of a card game the other day at our six show. First time we've ever been at this person's house. He rips off his shirt and starts popping his pecs in front of them. I said, So, where are you? He goes... Dad showed me how to do it. I said, your Dad did not show you how to do that. That was Mom who showed you how to do it. Don't put that on Dad. Okay, so we give them the talk. Hey, get it together. Don't be yourselves. We want to be invited back. Okay, you understand? Yes, sir. And we finish, and Allison looks at me, and she goes, you know, I don't think our kids even know that they're like preacher's kids. <laughs> and y'all, that made me so happy. Oh, i so proud. That's great. I've never wanted my kids to feel that weird preacher's kid pressure, so I'm just talking about how proud I am and how great of a job we're doing. And Allison listens. She pauses. She goes, yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. Um, but it might be helpful if they felt like a little bit of preacher's kid pressure. <laughs> you know, like just, a, just a little bit of shame might do our kids a little bit of good. Uh, all that to say, parents, don't be shocked if your kids are uninterested in your faith. If your faith is boring and anxious, and joyless. Are you really shocked if your kid sees you? And he's like, oh, that thing that makes mom and dad depressed all the time? Nope, don't need it. I'll be fine. I I remember uh, during an elder Q&A that we did for the men's conference, I think it was two years ago, somebody asked one of our elders, Mark Whitaker, Mark's sitting right there, and said, Mark, uh, give us a tip for how to teach uh, your kids to have faith, how to pass your faith along to your kids, because Mark has three girls who have awesome, incredible faith, Now I'll never forget what Mark said, you know, because people think like, well, is there like a family devotional we can go through? Is there a camp that we can send our our kids through? Is there a certain Bible study? What should we do? And Mark, you remember what he said? Mark said, the most important thing that you can do to pass your faith on to your children is to let your children see you enjoying your faith. Isn't that good? Most important thing that you can do to pass your faith on to your children is to let your children see you enjoying your faith. I mean, just listen to verse 10 again. It says, so remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Someone's like, look, pain is going to find you. It's calling somebody right now. Pain, (laughs) pain is going to find you, man. And so don't go out of your life to look for. That's why like the crazy workout, people are flipping the 18 wheeler tires. I'm like, bro, your body's going to break down anyways. You don't need to accelerate the process why was you looking for pain uh, uh, every once in a while at the fisher household alice and i will be sitting in bed on a tuesday night staring at our phones like lovers do and um she'll finish with her scrolling she'll put her phone down she'll turn over and she'll she'll look at me and she'll go did you hear about this family of six in colorado that was murdered in their sleep and i'll go oh my god no uh, they're friends of ours. Do we do we know them? She Oh no, I, I don't know them or anything. I'm like, what are you doing? You get in bed every night and Google, who all was murdered today. Like, why do we why do we do this to ourselves? We all do it. We have this weird fetish for trauma and for anger. You have to talk to your therapist about why we do it, but let's just know what Solomon says here. Remove grief and anger. From your heart, because while well, you can't control your mood, right? You know you can't control your mood. You can control whether or not you are pumping grief and anger into your eyeballs and your ear holes. Right? You have complete control over that. That brings us to chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Ellen Davis is an Old Testament scholar that I've, I've quoted a few times during the series. She wrote a great commentary on Ecclesiastes. And she notes how this verse is telling us something really important about spiritual growth, spiritual formation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Namely, every season of life comes with certain specific opportunities for spiritual growth. And the specific opportunity that we have for spiritual growth in our youth is we get this chance to come to know God as the creator. Okay, listen to what she says. We experience the special grace of God the creator as the invitation to be at home in the world. Now, taking our place in the world, not as foreign conquerors, but as children of the household, coming into responsibility is the proper work of youth. Now, those who have missed the opportunity may, at the end, come only to fear God as judge. And God the judge, separated off from God the creator, is only a figure of tyranny. In other words, those who who don't come to know God as the good and gracious creator of this imperfect but still very good world in their youth, tend to eventually come to experience God as either pure absence or cruel tyranny as they get older. And that leads us to one last thing about parenting. One of the things that I love about our church, sincerely, is that we have a lot of people from what I would call uh, Like recovering fundamentalist backgrounds, you know, like a a lot of us grew up in settings that were pretty legalistic and rigid and repressive, and so we've come to this and it's been a breath of fresh air, and we've had a lot of freedom, and that's great. But I also think that we need to acknowledge that a lot of us are living off of the imperfect, but still very real faith capital that we inherited from our parents, but we're not really investing much of any faith capital into our children. Like we like to complain about how rigid and legalistic our upbringings were and that may well be true in many different ways but we're also naive and also a little bit arrogant about all the good gifts that we received and even those imperfect traditions. And so to be really specific, a lot of us don't see much of a need for instilling things like biblical knowledge and, and godly virtue and spiritual disciplines in our children. And we think it just kind of happens. We have plans for their their athletic achievement, their educational achievement. When it comes to their spiritual growth, we don't really have a plan for it. We just assume like, I don't know, man, it's just kind of like puberty. It'll just sort itself out, right? It'll just sort itself out. And we need to be really clear here. The reason that we think that we can just take our faith for granted is because our parents did not take their faith for granted. I'm going to say that again. The reason that a lot of us think that we can just take faith for granted and it all sorts itself out and our kids will just figure it out and there'll be people who love Jesus. The reason you can do that, you have the privilege of doing that is because your parents did not do that with you. And to a degree that's probably hard for a lot of us to comprehend, we are living off of the faith capital that we inherited from our parents, from our grandparents, yes, even in imperfect faith backgrounds and we should probably be thinking a little bit harder about what sort of faith inheritance we are leaving to our children. Are we adding to it? Are we supplementing it, are we growing it, are we investing further in it, or have we drawn it down to a deficit? And now a lot of our kids are starting in the red when it comes to their faith. Earlier I said that teaching your kids to pray, uh, teaching your kids to be joyful is every bit as important as teaching your kids how to pray, right? And that is true. But also, kind of important to teach your kids how to pray, right? Both those things are very important. And that leads us to one last verse, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. If you remember back a few weeks ago, I told you that this Hebrew word uh, translated vanity is the Hebrew word hevel. And it serves as a theme for Ecclesiastes as a whole in a lot of different ways. It is used 38 times In the book, that is a lot. And even though it's the same word being used over and over and over, havel, 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 is it's translated in a number of different ways in the book. Sometimes it's translated vapor, vanity, futility, absurdity, meaningless. And of course, this inevitably leaves us with the impression that Ecclesiastes is basically a book where Solomon, he takes full measure of human life under the sun and he comes to the rather depressing conclusion that everything is pointless. But as I suspect, you might suspect, something seems a little off in concluding that Ecclesiastes is a book whose basic message is that everything is pointless, right? Because if that were the case, then you could have just not written the book, you know, saved us all a lot of time. Because while there are some very depressing assertions in Ecclesiastes, y'all, there are also some very, very joyful and poignant assertions. Have you noticed them? All right, we'll just look at one. This is from chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. It says, go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved of your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you unto the sun." Isn't that great? And these verses so cleanly capture this tension at the heart of the Hebrew word "hevel," which lies at the heart of Ecclesiastes, because most literally speaking, "hevel does not mean absurd or vanity or meaningless, but rather most literally, hevel means like vapor or a mist. That's what the word means. So what's Hevel Chevel is uh, it's the smoke rising up from the fire. It's the steam rising up from the oven. It's the fog rising up from the surface of the earth. It's the wind blowing across the waters. And what all these things have in common is what? Well, this sense of of brevity, of transience, of impermanence, of elusiveness, of ephemerality. All those things are real, right? That's real. Smoke is real. They're not fake or absurd or meaningless. They are real, but they're also what? They're fleeting. They're not there for long. And you can't hold them. You ever try to hold smoke? You can't hold these things. So in other words, when Solomon says that life is hevel, he's not saying that life is meaningless. He's saying that life is elusive. We can't control it. And we can't boss it around. And this has always been hard to hear, I would suspect. But I think it's especially hard for us modern people to hear because we've been conditioned to take this very, you know, dictatorial attitude toward reality. Act like we can just, just boss reality around. We can bend it to our will. We can make reality whatever we want it to be. And this is closely related to the paradoxical insight at the heart of something like Alcoholics Anonymous. Why is Alcoholics Anonymous so profoundly powerful? Well, this idea that you can't hope to defeat alcohol until you give up all hope of defeating alcohol. If you're an alcoholic and you pick a fight with alcohol, you will lose. That's what it means to be an alcoholic. And so your only hope is to give up the hope of winning. In the same way Ecclesiastes challenges us to give up all hope of defeating reality. A lot of us have wasted a lot of our lives trying to defeat reality. You're not going to beat reality. You pick a fight with reality, you will lose. Reality is undefeated. But giving up hope of defeating reality does not mean that we give up hope. No, rather, it means that we learn how to enjoy life for the fleeting and broken, but nevertheless, very good gift that it is, and that we learn how to cherish all of these provisional joys that fill our life, because, y'all, you never know when it's going to be your last sunset, your last conversation with your dad, your last... Margarita, right? Your last time being disappointed by the cowboys. <laughs> you, 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 you never know when it's going to be the last hug you get from your kid. Right? sooner or later, your little kid's going to crawl up in your lap to snuggle and it's going to be for the last time. And it's not going to come with a big blinking sign that says, last snuggle from your kid. Right? But sooner or later, it'll be the last. It gets weird after a while. So, you know, there will be, there will be less. And you won't know it until it's already Happened. And as hard as it is to hear, you are not entitled to permanence. Now, Easter is coming. It's very close. We're going to be talking about this incredible gift of permanence that is offered to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we need to get really clear here, or else we will miss Easter. There is nothing that you could do that could ever render yourself entitled to eternity, It wouldn't matter if you lived a perfect life. You're still not entitled to eternity. And so even if there was no offer of eternity in the empty tomb, our proper response to life would still be to enjoy it for the fleeting but still very precious gift that it is. All that to say, all that to say, put a bow on it all. Instead of trying to chase down and grab the wind, hold the wind, which you can't do, it's a fool's game, quit trying to do that. What should you do? Man, you should... You should hoist a sail and you enjoy it for however long it is blowing. Because it's only when you rid yourself of these delusions of entitlement and control that you can receive life for what it really is. And what's that? It's a gift. Always and forever and freely given on loan from a good and gracious God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, we come before you today and we are grateful for so many of these beautiful provisional joys that fill our lives. The warmth of the sun on our skin, a hug, a handshake, a good cup of coffee, a good meal. God, these are are things that we... uh, you know, they won't be here forever. We never know when it will be our last. And as hard as it is to hear, that's not a reason for uh, anxiety or frustration. God, it's, a, it's an occasion for gratitude because none of it was ever guaranteed. None of it was ever merited. None of it was ever deserved. And so we're grateful for every, every breath, every provisional joy that we get. We confess all the ways in which we have, understandably, felt entitled, entitled to eternity. Uh, Solomon tells us you put eternity in our heart, and so it is understandable. But God, we are not entitled to it. And so we pray that you would help us with open hands to receive life for what it is, a broken but still very precious gift that is given on loan that we're to cherish for however long we have it and then trust you with our future. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.